0: Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman, and my guest today is a National Geographic Adventurer of the Year. Hillary Nelson O'Neill has a laundry list of accomplishments. She is the first woman to climb two 8,000 meter peaks in 24 hours. One of them just happened to be Mount Everest. She's done over 40 expeditions around the world, she's done Iron Man competitions. And she doesn't just climb mountains these days. She climbs them and then skis down them. She's got a hell of a lot of stories. And we talk about everything from facing death on the mountain to seeing more women in the sport to embracing fear. Here's her story. National Geographic named you a 2018 Adventure of the Year. Now, meantime, just before we started talking, uh, I had to walk up two flights of stairs and I'm, <laughs> I'm still catching my breath right now. So <laughs> what is your secret?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think it's a sort of hmm, a longevity, I guess you could say, in my career. <laughs> and that I'm, that's a nice way of putting it, uh, that I'm just still, uh, I mean, what, what, what specifically the Nat Geo Adventure of the Year was for sort of completing this 20-year obsession with a, a peak in India and... It has less to do with my fitness and just more with this stubborn streak that I have, I think, mm-hmm. that uh, keeps me going out there. And I really just love pushing myself and getting in those situations. And it hasn't abated as of yet. So maybe that's my secret. Just I like to suffer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, you came up uh, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, grew up there. Yep. Uh, how did you get your start? What was the early introductions that got you on the path that you are today?
1: Well, there were quite a few influences, I guess. But to the the irony is that very few of those influences were actually in the mountains. So when I was young, I spent a lot of time on like an old wooden boat that my parents had with my brother and sister, and mm-hmm. we would go for you know six weeks at a time up into the Inside Passage of uh, Canada by Vancouver Island, mm-hmm. and I. I think that is pretty much where I fell in love with wilderness and adventure and living off the land and also really spent a lot of time just by myself and in the quiet and how to entertain yourself in small spaces, which oddly enough has is has a lot of similarities to, you know, being stuck in a tent on a yeah. mountain somewhere. And then as I got older, I mean, I skied my whole life, but once I left for college when I was 18, I moved to Colorado, went to Colorado College, and mm-hmm. that's a very outdoor-oriented school, and I got into the sciences, biology, and we would do tons of field trips, and I just started, you know, climbing mountains and skiing them, um, and it just was kind of the group of friends that I fell in with that taught me a lot about rock climbing. I mean, I didn't start rock climbing rock climbing till I was 19,
0: what was your what was your family like? I mean, were your parents big outdoors people? You, you had two siblings too. Did it stick with them as well, or were, are you the the odd one of the bunch?
1: I I mean I'm a I'm the odd one for sure in my family, and the extreme direction I've taken it. But <laughs> my family is very athletically oriented. My brother was a road national for crew, and uh, my sister's an incredible skier. Mm-hmm. It's um, you know, and she was a good swimmer in high school. I wouldn't say my parents are incredibly outdoorsy people. They yeah. have become more so. We we spent a lot of time in Sun Valley, Idaho, and you know, hiked in high school and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But it was it was a very different path for me to take away from what I've been brought up with.
0: Right. They they did their part in getting you on the skis and in, in, in taking you around on the boat. That was their yeah. contribution. Yeah.
1: Yes. I definitely don't think they expected the outcome they got, but right. <laughs> they got it nonetheless.
0: <laughs> Surprise. <Yeah>.
1: Surprise.
0: <laughs> what was your plan in those early days? You go off to Colorado College. and what, I mean, before you had this idea of going on expeditions as your career, what did you think your life was going to look like?
1: I mean... I grew up very much in a routine and very much, uh, with an amazing but sheltered group of friends and the idea of going away to college, I was sort of the, you know, really the first one in my family to leave the state right off the bat to go to school. Uh, mm-hmm. we are very, very many generations living in the Seattle area and, even to this day really only my brother and I live, you know, outside of the Seattle area. Mm-hmm. And my idea in going away to college was just to not not to wipe the slate clean, but just to have new experiences outside of what I'd grown up in. I grew up, you know, very motivated in basketball, I kind of had the same team my whole life. It was just like I said a lot of routine and I just knew deep down that I wanted to break out of that and right. do something different. I didn't know what it was at that point, but...
0: Yeah, so the clean slate, getting out of state, going somewhere new, breaking away from, from the familiarity, challenging yourself in a bit.
1: Yeah, and you know, that's become a theme of mine my whole adult life. I've said many times that my one of my biggest fears is just being too comfortable. And I really... Mm-hmm. I really seek out things in my life that challenge me and that are a surprise to some extent. Um, you know, kids do that too. <laughs> Every day is a little different. And um, yeah, and I just, I think that kind of started at that that decision to leave home at 18.
0: Yeah. So you go off to college. Who Who is it that introduces you to rock climbing and to some other elements that you hadn't already taken up for
1: well really like right off the bat i got in with a group of friends that are you know still friends of mine to this day and the way colorado college is set up you have these three and a half weeks where you just take one class and it's really intense and then you have these block breaks and you can go away for five days six days at a time and go anywhere
0: that sounds really nice
1: it's really cool. It's pretty amazing. And especially when you have like a a biology major, it's just your professor and the kids in the class. And so we would go for three week outdoor adventures as well, learning with science. So, you know, and it's kind of funny, I remember I had this really cool science teacher in high school. And I remember saying that I just I wanted to grow up and I wanted to travel, I wanted to see the world. And he was the one that was like, hey, you know." you should get into biology and sciences because you'd be surprised. You may not realize this now, but that is an amazing way to travel and see the world. Hmm. And so that sort of directed my mindset in college. And then while I can't say I've done much with my biology degree, it definitely sort of opened the, the floodgates for me with just the outdoor world in general.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so as the years are going on, uh, before you get this ticket uh, One way ticket to go to France, yeah. Chamonix. Yeah. What what was your plan? I mean, you, you get to the later stages. You're you're looking at you know graduation, the cap and gown. Uh, did you have an idea before just going off to France, or or well, I mean,
1: about? I on honestly, I had no idea that I could make a living from being a ski mountaineer, from being a skier at all, and a climber. And so my original intent in going to Chamonix was that I just I had you know, nothing tying me down. And I was going to go for a winter and then I was going to come back and either look into further education. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a veterinarian or a marine biologist. Those were sort of my two things. But literally because of that one way ticket that my parents gave me, whenever I came home at that time, it was less expensive to buy a round trip ticket. So I came home very infrequently, but I always had a round-trip ticket to go back to France. So I always went back for five, six years. And I started competing while I was over there in sort of the extreme comps, the free ride comps, and a lot of endurance rondo races is what they're called. And I was doing really well. I took some really cheesy modeling jobs for skiing, and I was you know, making money and having a life over there and learning a new language. And the Alps are a mecca for anything climbing, ski mountaineering. Right. And so, yeah. um, I, and I I've said this before, it felt like, a, you know, a second university. Yeah. And I just had a lot of opportunities come up. And slowly but surely I realized I really loved <laughs> the climbing and the skiing and that I could make a living at it and i stuck with it
0: what are you thinking about when you're on a mountain whether it's ski mountaineering whether it's skiing or whether it's climbing what what's going through your head or what draws you to it
1: well what i like to do the most are things that they're not they're not quick so you have a lot of time to think hmm. you know i'm i'm on an expedition anywhere from a month to 2 months and you're typically, you know, traveling in a a foreign culture. And it's a a lot of overground travel to get to the mountain. And what I really, really love about it is the actual act of climbing requires your entire focus. And it requires all that noise that we have in our day to day lives to just sort of get pushed to the background. Mm. And you're really just this incredible focus it's like a meditation almost that i wish i could do in my day-to-day life but i really only find it when i'm in the mountains and i'm climbing and i you know the longer the trip the more you get into it of course there's like tons of time when i'm like what am i doing why am i here i should be home i should be doing this out of the other thing but then there's also just these amazing moments and the interactions you have with your climbing partners you just get to know people really fast and the cultures and the wildlife. like It's just it's just adventure. And mm. I I don't know. I just really thrive on it.
0: So tell me then about your first, so to speak, capital E expedition, the first big one for you that would set off this chain of events that hasn't stopped <laughs> for, for years and years.
1: Well, the first one, and then totally dating myself, it was in 1999. And I was still living in Chamonix. And I had... Had this meeting with the North Face, who has now been, you know, one of my primary sponsors for almost two decades, Mm -hmm. and they were looking for a female ski mountaineer to go to India and kind of, you know, do this. It was an NBC documentary film just about the Himalayas and being in the mountains. Yeah. And I passed their test. I'm not, not quite sure how, but I did, and was you know 3 weeks later I found myself going to India and that was like the beginning of the end I mean <laughs> we didn't even we didn't get to the top of what we were supposed to even get to but just the the climbing and the and and camping and living in the snow and just being fascinated with the physiology of how your body changes up at mm-hmm. high altitudes and all of that and the the culture of it everything I just I mean I discovered this passion that i didn't even know existed i mean sometimes it's bordered on obsession which maybe isn't so healthy but uh yeah that was the beginning of it
0: so you were hooked
1: i was totally hooked and that was also where i first saw this peak that i just climbed last year that got the Nacho adventure of the year
0: right the peak of evil
1: the peak of evil yes so that was the first time i saw it when i was in my you know mid-20s in 1999 yeah
0: You were the first woman to climb Mount Everest and Lhotse in 24 hours.
1: Lhotse? Yep. Lhotse.
0: Lhotse. I, uh, (laughs) thank you. Uh, what do you remember most from that expedition?
1: I remember, and this not, this doesn't discredit Everest at all, but I just, I remember standing on top of Everest and it was a really, um, Difficult expedition for me. I had, you know, a lot going on in my personal life and my kids were pretty young and it was the longest trip I'd ever done. It was 10 weeks. And I remember Mm. standing on top of Everest and just, you know, the sun was rising. It's absolutely beautiful. It was freezing cold. Like if you took your goggles off, your eyeballs would freeze. It was so cold. And there were, you know, 60 or 70 people on the summit. Mm. And we'd been fighting and struggling in this line the whole way up that morning. And I just remember standing up there and, and feeling really frustrated. And as you as you climb down from Everest, your whole view is filled with Lotse, this other peak that's just, you know, the neighbor of Everest and also an incredibly stunning peak. And mm-hmm. my climbing partner had originally had the idea to climb the two peaks together. And I thought like, God, no way that's going to be impossible. There's no way to do that. But walking down from Everest and looking across and seeing that other peak and there were no people on it. And I just remember being like, "We're, that's it. I'm done. We're going, we're going, we're going to keep going. So,
0: so was that part of just trying to get away from the crowds to want to do Lhotse and say, all right, I've, I've been to top of Everest, but there's 60 people here. Let me, let me have this private moment to myself.
1: Yeah, I think I really felt that I was frustrated with this Everest climb and I didn't want to have all this time that I spent away from my kids and just my life in general and then to come home frustrated. And I knew that if I added something onto it, it would make it more of an accomplishment and more unique for me. I wasn't thinking about anybody outside of that, but just just for me to have that feeling of really putting myself out there and extending myself. And it's hard to feel like that when you're climbing nose to butt with a hundred other people.
0: Hmm. You had two torn ligaments in your ankle during yeah. that trip. How do you, how do you manage that?
1: Oh, that was really tough. I mean, ironically, in hindsight, I was so focused on my ankle during the climb that I think it actually helped my climbing. Hmm. In some twisted way, it really um, helped me not feel all the other sort of suffering that was going on. And it was just like, okay, how much longer is my ankle going to last? How, you know, one step after the other, one step after the other, that really like being in the moment. And, you know, we were awake for 50 hours and I had only, I had sprained my ankle or I mean, I destroyed my ankle just 10 days before summiting. Mm-hmm. And literally when we came down from Lhotse and started walking down through the icefall, it was like all that adrenaline had gone away and so my ankle just like stopped working and the number of times that I put my leg down to like take a downhill step and my ankle just didn't work and I, I would roll to the ground and like do a somersault and then get back up and be like, okay, okay, I got to make it work for just a little bit longer. Uh-huh. It was uh, it was pretty intense for sure.
0: <laughs> now, and, and uh, were you doing this with oxygen or were you doing this without? Uh, what, what had been your plan?
1: So we did it with oxygen. I started, I put oxygen on at 8,000 meters, so about 26,000 feet. And I originally wanted to climb without oxygen, and I was going to do that with Conrad Anker. But he had kind of gotten really worked on the way up by carrying too much of a load and decided he was going to postpone. He ended up doing it without oxygen the next day, the day that... Chris Erickson and I went to the summit of Lotse. Mm-hmm. but um, I was, and I just, I got really scared and didn't want to do it by myself because it's just a much slower process and you get cold and the, the warm, the, the weather we'd expecting hadn't come in yet and it was really cold. So I ended up wearing oxygen and used it again also for Lhotse
0: what's the worst of it on any of these climbs when you're going super high altitude? Is it the altitude itself? Is it the cold? Is it something else? The discomfort? Uh, What, what bothers you the most?
1: Uh, It's so hard to say when you're in it because you go through such a slow process. I would say the the headaches and the lack of sleep are probably the hardest. Mm. Um, If there's any sort of, Poor team dynamics. that's also really hard. It's really hard to deal emotionally and to communicate well mm-hmm. in those situations. So if you already have strained team dynamics, that's so tough to deal with. But yeah, the headaches and the, you know you have to sleep propped up, and you don't really sleep. It's really just this relaxation cycle. It's really tough to mm-hmm. eat. Yeah, it's really uncomfortable. It's not that sweet.
0: So how do you? How come you have to sleep propped up? Like what? What's the arrangement there or, or the reasoning behind that?
1: Well, because if you lay down, there's just so little oxygenated blood moving through your system. I mean, you mm-hmm. take weird, you know, you, you take one of those pulse, pulse oximeters, I think they're called with you and you're, you're measuring your oxygen absorption all the time and you're down into the, you know, the high sixties, which if you had that at home, you'd be hospitalized basically. Uh. So you really have to prop yourself up just so that you don't have that pressure in your head and it just helps you breathe better and keep your head from feeling like it's being beaten with a hammer. Oh, geez. Yeah. Fun, <laughs> huh?
0: <It's> awesome. <laughs> so you're, you're coming back from Everest and you start talking with Mark Jenkins about what you want to do next. Yeah. Uh, the idea comes up. You decide it's going to be this super remote peak in Myanmar, uh, Hakakabo Razi. How does that come up?
1: Well, that actually originally started, Mark and I walked into Everest Base Camp together. The rest of our team had had gone in earlier and we came, you know, a little, like a week or 10 days later. Mm -hmm. And so we had 10 days just walking in together and Mark's an incredibly well-traveled writer and adventurer and... I had first heard of Hakakabo Razi in the early 2000s, so maybe 2001 or 2002, and had tried for years to get North Face to help fund us to go there, but it was really politically difficult and expensive mm-hmm. and many other reasons, and then talking to Mark, he had actually been there in like the late 80s and had tried to get into the it's the Himalaya, actually, that Dropped down into Burma, mm-hmm. Myanmar, and that's Hakaka Razi And he knew of the peak and had actually tried to go there and climb it. And I was just fascinated and so wanted to go. And the politics were changing, uh, in that Westerners were far from getting a carte blanche to travel there, but it was opening up and you could travel yeah. there. And, uh, so after we went through the whole Everest thing and it was so crowded and every step of the way was laid out for us, we both were just like, I, I just really wanted to go back to the remote corners of the globe and have an adventure. And Hakaka Barazi was all of that and more. Right.
0: How do you how do you go about planning that and, and picking the team for that, getting everything in motion? I mean, this is a, a mountain that's remote enough that it's not necessarily well mapped out, how you're going to get up there, you're having to figure things out. What's the process like for that?
1: Right. I mean, at the time, that, so basically we came home from Everest and National Geographic came into the picture again. We applied for an explorer's grant and received the grant, and it still took almost two years before we were able to actually implement the expedition. It just took so long. And I was responsible for most all of the logistical planning so you know all the overland travel all the permits um and all of that was really rather complicated and time consuming so um i did you know most of it from home but even just finding maps there were really we had one or two pictures of the peak from a japanese guy that had climbed there in the mid 90s but we weren't even sure that they were photos of the actual mountain Mm. so it was you know incredibly difficult to plan, and all of the logistics were so loose and just yeah, just uh, we had to be really ready for things to not quite go as we expected,
0: right. Uh, and, um <laughs> and they didn't so, and of they course. Did it, yeah. yeah,
1: they definitely didn't <laughs> uh,
0: a lot of things happened. I mean, just before even getting to base camp,, uh, that was a long enough expedition in itself just to get there, yeah, uh, what 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 were the most memorable bits of that? the things that you look back now and and shake your head at or just you know, can't help but laugh at?
1: Well, we thought that it would be a really great idea to sort of craft this as an old-fashioned expedition, which meant we went overland all the way from the the main city, Yangon, which is way in the south of Myanmar. Hmm. And we traveled some 1,000 miles before we even got to where we started walking. So then we had to walk. Uh, we took these little, oh my God, these little mopeds through the jungle, which was terrifying. <laughs> and then we had to walk. What if The mopeds were 80 miles, and it took us four days to go 80 miles on these bikes. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then, and then we had to walk 150 miles to get to base camp. So it was a month of overland travel before we even got to the mountain. And there were un- numerous amounts of adventures. Um, the death train, which I highly recommend anyone going to Burma to avoid, was just this 18-hour, like, bumpy, horrible, spider-infested train. Oh, jeez. it's a little tricky um but a couple of things that we did experience that were pretty incredible was taking the the ferry from Bagan to Mandalay on the Irrawaddy River and that was incredible mm-hmm. and then all the temples in Bagan and and just the the culture and the people were so unique and and you would expect it to be unique because it's been so isolated for so many decades but you know you don't you you don't know what unique is until you're in it and it was, yeah, the people were beautiful and so helpful and just, I don't know, just a, an incredible place.
0: I'm, I'm guessing that the official name of the death train, it probably has a different <laughs> name when you're doing the bookings. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think if you look pretty, if you look a little bit on the, you know, a little get dive deeper beyond booking your tickets right. on the internet, it's it's called the death train because the rails are so old and so warped that the train bounces Intensely enough to derail it, like, more often than not. And usually that results in somebody dying, which, fortunately, um, it didn't derail while we were on it. But mm-hmm. uh, it was shocking that it didn't derail.
0: Any number of things can go wrong when you're on an expedition. Yes. How do you prepare for the worst or, or the inevitable, in some senses?
1: I think it takes um, a certain mindset it's not to say that all the things that went wrong on this trip weren't incredibly frustrating. I mean, I almost you know, quit my life of expedition athlete after that expedition, and that was mm-hmm. because of human dynamics, but it was also just because of so much going wrong or so many things going in ways outside of our expectations. That it was just hard to absorb it and hard to see the the bright side of the situation Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but again it was all of our choices to be there and you know now two years you know gosh it's been almost four years flash forward i look back on it as an amazing adventure and and that is when everything goes wrong but you do you just you have to have a mindset where you go in with the expectation that things are going to go as you planned right but the flexibility and the relaxed ness if that's it's not even a word but um to to adapt right and change and laugh at things oh my god laughter is very very important
0: i <laughs> <laughs> uh, i guess it begs the question if anything is an adventure if things don't go wrong
1: yeah i mean I, yeah believe me i've looked up the definition of adventure many times since that trip and of course it, it is it's you know if 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 everything goes as planned then you're basically on a on a cruise ship, you know, you're mm. on a, you're on a straight thing. It's when the, when the cruise ship hit a, hits a rock or, mm. you know, when things happen you that you just, you're not prepared for. And in regards to that specific trip, it was, I was totally unprepared for what it was like to spend two weeks walking through a jungle. I mean, I've never done that before. And mm-hmm. the the sense of disorientation and helplessness is not something as like an A-type climber that I like enjoy by any stretch, and we didn't we didn't plan for getting bribed out of a lot of our reserves of food by military outposts in some of these villages. Mm. We didn't plan, you know, on these punji sticks, these bamboo spikes that were all over the trail that you had to crawl around that were like stakes that you were going to impale yourself on. So the the jungle trekking was so strenuous and exhausting that by the time we even got to where the mountains were and the snow was, we were close to out of food and, you know, just, we'd lost tons of weight and we were stretched, (laughs) stretched very thin.
0: Yeah, so you already mentioned you spent two years planning this particular expedition uh, and you get up there and it's decided that what was a group of five is going to become a group of three to try and get to the top and yeah. and then that doesn't quite work out either how do you come to terms with in this expedition or any, or any other for that matter how do you come to terms with making that decision to to call things off and and say you know we've done the best we can uh, it's time to to pack up and head home
1: in that particular case i mean it wasn't it wasn't even a decision it was it was there was no other way to go about it i mean we had eight days of food for the mountain and we were already into like day 10. Our team dynamics were really challenged and falling apart essentially because we weren't communicating. Mm. We were hungry. We were tired of every, if you can imagine for six weeks going into this expedition, every step was somewhere we didn't know. It was the most convoluted mountain I've ever experienced. And at one point, it was like either you know, if we keep going, we're not all going to make it back. Mm-hmm. So when you're when you're faced with that, it's it's a pretty easy decision. It still hurts, and yeah, of course, I'm always like, well, God, I should, I want to go back now, knowing what I know, having been there. But you know, at the time when it's when it's that strung out, and and you actually still have your the competence within you to, to make that decision to turn around It's not even, like I said, it's it's not even a decision. You just Mm -hmm. have to turn around.
0: You mentioned already that this particular one kind of made you question whether you wanted to carry on doing more expeditions for a while. How, how did you rebound from that and what got you inspired again?
1: Um, it took, gosh, it took a while. It took almost a year. Uh, and it, and it was two things in two thousand four. In the spring of two thousand fourteen, was also there was the the ice fall avalanche in Nepal on mm. Mount Everest, and a lot of Sherpas that I had climbed with in two thousand twelve were killed in that ice fall. Mm. And then a few months later, we went and had this just crazy adventure where we, you know, we barely made it back, and the the human dynamics on it were so difficult in terms of where I was as a climber and, you know, maybe I was doing all of this. Maybe my whole career had been for nothing, basically. It was sort of my attitude coming back. And I spent a lot of time focused on my kids and a year went by and Emily Harrington, who's a climber and a good friend of mine, and she was in Burma and Everest and asked me to go on another expedition to climb and ski Makalu. And it was just the team and and my kids came with me. They trekked into base camp. Mm -hmm. And it just, Emily is full of energy and smiles and excitement. And basically she got me excited to kind of dive back in again.
0: What was it like having your kids there with you for that
1: one? Oh my gosh, it was pretty stressful. (laughs) We hiked in because we had to go in like the end of August to get there at the right time for climbing. So basically we hiked in from... You know, some sixty miles from like a thousand feet up to sixteen thousand feet over twelve days. Yeah, and uh, it was pouring rain, and there were leeches everywhere, and it was muddy, and the rivers were raging, and I was pretty stressed. And like the kids, just thought it was the freaking coolest thing they've ever done. They were <laughs> having, they had a blast. So, um, you know, different perspectives.
0: Yeah, and, <laughs> and how old were they when when you took them?
1: I mean, they were six and eight. They They're pretty little. Yeah. And my eight-year-old, he walked the whole way. We had two porters that were helping, like, just with them. And my six-year-old got, you know, he got a piggyback ride maybe 50% of the time. But, uh-huh. I mean, they really, they did it. And they had such an amazing interaction with different kids from these really remote villages and uh, the porters. And it, it was pretty cool.
0: How do you pick what expedition you're going to do next at any given time? Is it a conversation with with one of your fellow people, whether it is somebody like Emily? Is it something that you're you're reading about? How do you generally decide, okay, here's where I'm going next?
1: I think when I was younger, I would just go wherever the wind blew me. (laughs) Hmm. I was so hungry for these climbs and these different places. And now, I mean for sure i there are still so many places i haven't been but i'm much more discerning about expeditions i go on and obviously i have kids you know life just gets busier the older you get whether you want it to or not so i'm not going on four and five expeditions a year i'm going on one or two mm-hmm. so i am just much more careful to pick them out and pick things that I really am passionate about for example like the peak of evil in India last year and this year I'm going to go back to Nepal and try and climb Lhotse again I'm going to go to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in April because I feel really strongly about that place both because of its beauty and because of the environmental pressures that are going on up there right now Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, so things like that. I'm uh, more apt to be very particular about who I climb with and the size of the team and where we're going than I was 10 years ago.
0: Hmm. People that you know you're going to get along with, right? That that are going right. to make it a fun and successful, I guess, experience. Yeah,
1: yeah, for sure.
0: Tell me about the Peak of Evil, what that was like.
1: Uh, uh, it was the first mountain that I'd ever gone back to a second time so having done you know upwards of 40 expeditions or so I went first to the peak of evil in 2013 and we didn't get far on the mountain at all we did this incredible point-to-point traverse that covered almost 40 or 50 miles above 14,000 feet And in that, we were going to climb Papsura, and it just was the wrong time of year. The conditions were bad, and it's a really big, scary face. So to be able to sit on it for a few years and then go back in 2017 with a smaller team, we were just three people versus seven. Mm -hmm. And Chris Figginshaw was with me in 2013, and then Jim Morrison, who's sort of my climbing adventure and life partner Uh, he was there as well and knowing the terrain and being able to plan it for a different time of the year and cut out the traverse and just do an in and out really just gave us laser focus on it and I mean within 10 days of landing in Delhi gosh we already we were at on the summit and it's you know over 21,000 feet so we just kind of Flew in, and it was it was the hardest, probably the hardest, scariest single day I've experienced. I mean, it was a full-on alpine ice climb, and then we descended on skis, basically. Not a lot of turning, a lot of side-slipping, kick turns, ropes. It was intense.
0: What was the most memorable part of that? If it's the, the most hair-raising part or, or the scary part of that?
1: I mean, the most harrowing part was getting onto the face with skis. And it's, you know, a a solid 55-degree pitch. Uh And you've got maybe a millimeter of this crunchy snow on top of blue ice. And you're in this whiteout, a total whiteout. Hmm. So you can't even tell the blue ice from the places where there are snow. And you know that there's this bottomless, like, pit below you that just wants to eat you up and spit you out. And that was the most intense moment for me because I there's this thing in climbing, at least for me, where there's a where fear is healthy, but if your fear starts to roll into panic, hmm. it's really dangerous. And I, I was battling on that line for probably three hours.
0: And the margin of error there is really slim, right? I mean, if, if you fall, yeah, that's a, that's got to be a long way down.
1: Yeah, there's no way to arrest yourself on that face. And I mean, if you're ski pre-released, if you lost your balance, anything. So, it, it, you know, when you're 12 hours into a day and you're not acclimatized well at all and you haven't eaten and you, you still have to have that much focus, it's exciting. <laughs> maybe maybe that's a good word uh, for it.
0: You know, you've chosen a sport where you are are forced in some ways to confront your own mortality, knowing that something could go wrong and, and that could be it. Yeah. Uh, how how has that changed your perspective on things or yeah, how have you dealt with that? It's
1: it's interesting cuz by no means am I ever on a death mission i strongly believe in turning around <laughs> mm-hmm. i really also have gotten to know myself well enough that when i say i'm good like i mean it and i i know how to like physically keep myself in check in order to make it through some of those scary points and when it comes to mortality. I mean, I think about it a lot and the crazy thing is I have seen people die, not seen had friends die in horrible climbing accidents, but I've also had plenty of experience with people dying from things that are like walking across the street. Yeah. And it's awful and you know, I'm not a huge fan of you know, be, it always is said, you know, when someone dies in the mountains, they died doing what they love to do. I don't think anybody goes out there wanting to die. They love doing what they're doing. And I think living a passionate life involves risk and, and certain dangers and sacrifices. But I just, I don't, I know I don't want to die doing what I love. I just want to live to be old and see my kids grow up. But yeah. Um, I think death ha- has a mind of its own and it is fickle. And I've seen enough of it to know that you just have to live when you're alive. <laughs> mm.
0: So many people don't even want to get up onto that mountain. There's a fear there. How do you confront that fear in what you're doing?
1: I mean, oftentimes it's because I'm afraid of it that I want to go and do it. So I try to take a different approach. I mean, like for me, I've been I've been doing a lot of speaking engagements for National Geographic, and you get up on stage in front of a thousand people, and it's absolutely terrifying for me. Like it's not. I, I've done it enough now that I, I I enjoy it. I enjoy sharing those stories, but like we all have fears, and I've now been in the mountains enough that I know how to manage that. But I think even Even somebody who doesn't have any desire to climb a mountain has huge fears, whether it comes to work or a family or a relationship. And it can be so debilitating. But it also is like if you've never experienced fear and like faced it and failed or had success with it either way, like you're not living. So I remind myself of that all the time like it it, it's it is that fear it's that fear that we should be seeking out that we should be like looking for in order to enrich our lives
0: and in some ways you're more afraid of of being too comfortable yeah of being complacent yeah
1: right and sometimes I'm like well maybe I need to face that and really like dig deep into what that means for me and why I'm you know kind of running from that all the time Mm.
0: Yeah. How do you go from, I mean, because in some ways your your sport is one of extremes. You have the high of an expedition and then you go back mm-hmm. to routine of everyday right. life. Same thing day after day. Yeah. What is that like to, to go from such polar opposite experiences constantly?
1: Uh, I mean, as you can imagine, it's a roller coaster and I, as hard as it is for me to pack up my bags and get on a plane and go into this world of discomfort and no showers and no connectivity and long days and heavy packs. It's equally as difficult to come back to phones ringing and mirrors and mm. having to go to the bank and the post office and even, even kid routines and soccer practice. It's, it's hard. It's um, it's not something I am great at. And it's almost like a depression cycle too, a little bit, because sometimes there's so much stimulation going on on these expeditions. Things are just happening and coming at you so fast, and you're really in this like ninja mindset. And then you come home, and it's that intensity goes away, and it's really hard to adapt.
0: It's a different challenge. Yeah. Yeah. You've been at this a while now, enough to see how the sport has changed in terms of uh, the representation of women in, in what you're participating in. How have you seen it change? What are the sorts of things that you're seeing now that you maybe didn't see when you first got into it?
1: I'm seeing a lot more women filling some of these spaces, these predominantly male adventure sports. And I think that in itself is like a, a tidal wave that's going to change a lot of <laughs> perspectives of of being in the mountains. So when I started, you know, it, it was very rare that there were any female ski mountaineers. And how much that has changed is like unfathomable almost. You know, 20, mm-hmm. flash forward, you know, 20 years and you've got like almost the female explanation is going away it's no longer you're the first female to do this you're just the first to do this and I think that comes from just a infusion of females in general in the sport and also just a, a new generation of male climbers as well that actually see the value in what females can contribute to a team because we are females because of the perspective we have the our gut feeling our different approach to climbing, whatever it is, it has value and it, it makes it fun. And it's, it's just changed a lot. <laughs> Even in four years, it's changed a lot in five years, you know, and I think it'll just, you'll just see more rapid change as we go forward in the next couple of years.
0: What is your, your white whale or the thing that still eludes you, the thing that still inspires you going forward?
1: Uh, I'm more, I'm slowly coming into this phase in my life of realizing that all the experiences I've had, both culturally in my sport and in the environment can have an impact. I think we're in a really critical place in terms of climate change and just our human impact in general. And I think that is what's driving me forward in the future is becoming a part of that conversation and addressing those issues through things I've seen firsthand, through stories I can tell, through adventures I still am yet to have.
0: Because mm-hmm. you have two kids of your own. You you want them to experience some of those same things?
1: Yeah. I mean, I look at, I live in Telluride, Colorado, and we we just like didn't even have a winter this year. You know, and my kids are getting up in the morning and they're like mom when when's it gonna snow like where where's winter like we miss winter we want it to snow and for me that kind of puts me in this panicked place of like oh my god like uh, my whole life has been snow and ice and and winter and the amazing opportunities that's provided for me and the things I've gotten to see and and the perspective I have because of it and to think that that could change in uh, you know a generation Mm -hmm. is it's a bummer
0: just one final question for you in your sport it's one in which you sometimes have to be okay with failure in a sense i think that's uh, probably yeah i think that's probably true for most things but but uh yeah. what have you learned from failure and the things that have gone wrong or, or the things that have gone not according to plan
1: i mean i struggle with the like the whole failure success paradigm all, all the time like i don't set out on these missions to fail and to not get to the top like <laughs> I'm pretty driven and competitive with myself in that regard but at the same time I've gotten older I've been doing this for 20 years and I see success in the fact that I've you know never had anyone die on an expedition I've been on and there's success in without being sounding totally cheesy but in the journey versus the goal at the end mm-hmm. That does sound totally cheesy, but it's true. <laughs> I mean, it's such a cliche, but it's totally true. Like the, all the the cultures I've gotten to experience, you know, like being in the Kanchaka Peninsula and watching grizzly bears fight for hours while the male is trying to kill the, the female's cubs and walking onto beaches in the Isle of South Georgia near Antarctica with hundreds of thousands of penguins and Seeing the sunrise on Mount Everest, like these are all things that are very worth the effort and the endeavor, even if they're not ultimately successful in terms of completing the mission. Hmm.
0: Thank you so much. I I really had fun uh, talking to you and uh, wish you the best.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot.
0: That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, you can do me a favor and hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review, and please tell someone else about the show. If you want to get in touch, you can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle, off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time.